Good evening. It's Christmas Eve. Do you believe it? This is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley, and we are navigating in this, the greatest city in the world, some very, very, very troubled times. So we'll talk about that in depth during the next hour. We'll also talk about the interview, Sony's picture, which was uh, going to be released, then wasn't going to be released, and now is going to be released. We'll talk about Michael Grimm and uh, one really, really deep story about whether or not uh, that prosecutor McCullough out in Missouri, he should be facing criminal charges. But we'll get into all that right off the top. And we're going to have a very special guest, too. I, w- I want people to know that now um, because she's going to talk to us about an upcoming event uh, that honors an African-American icon, a really great man. But let's start out with what's going on in this city, which is so multifaceted. I could take two hours just talking about what's going on. Mayor Bill de Blasio, I have to say, and and this was like my initial reaction when I heard that the protesters who he had asked to chill out and press pause until uh, until the two officers who were tragically assassinated were buried, de Blasio got punked. He absolutely got punked. He asked for something. I'm worried about you. Uh, And that, by the way, also exposes a generational divide, which we'll talk about just a little bit later. What's amazing about this, this is the mayor of the city of New York, for God's sake. And he said to people, and I thought, uh, to be honest with you, I thought what he asked them was reasonable. Just like, you know, press pause until the officers ran, and then go right back to doing what you were doing. And uh, I don't, I'm not even sure I should say this, Jason. Well, what the heck? This is a progressive radio network. I'll say it anyway. He had some leverage at his disposal in dealing with the protesters. Now, dealing with Pat Lynch, when you're dealing with what I consider to be lunatic behavior, (laughs) my guess is you are kind of sort of out of options. But when it came to the protesters, Bill de Blasio had leverage. Now, I'm not going to share with you what that leverage is because I'm not the mayor. They don't pay me that kind of money. But I know what I would do if I really, really wanted the protesters not to do this, not to go back out into the street until the officers were buried. And it's not about whether it's a a rally or a march. People knew what he was talking about. They ain't stupid. But. He got punked. <laughs> he just got, they went out in the street last night. And I got to tell you something else. Uh, because I spend time, when I have it available, walking the streets of this great city and kind of getting a sense of where people are at. Not by walking up and sticking a microphone in front of their faces. That's for the television pretty boys and pretty girls. That's not for me. I got a face made for radio. I just listen. Okay? And I, and I, I observe. And last night, I was on my way to the Port Authority bus terminal. I walked past the block on 36th Street where the Midtown South Precinct is. And I saw a group of cars pull up and officers getting out of them, which led me to believe that they had just come from the demonstration on Fifth Avenue. The tension on the faces of these officers, you might as well have stamped it on their forehead. They were... Tense. I'm not saying they were afraid, but they were nervous. You could see it in there. When you have nervous, armed people, you got a problem. Just ask that guy, uh, uh, the, the, the cop that shot that guy in the stairwell in the pink houses in Brooklyn. A nervous, scared cop with a gun drawn. And what happens? A life is lost. Now, that's not the leverage I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, you know, bringing Bill de Blasio, bringing people into the room and say, you know what? You could get shot. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that absent Pat Lynch in a rational mode, okay, and Lord only knows why he's not in a rational mode, but that's between him and his psychiatrist. But other than that, there has to be people that are prepared to sit and talk. Now, it's only been, and see, I I know Jason knows this, and I've known it from the very beginning, all right, when these protests began. 
There is a divide here. Okay, and it's not just between cops and protesters. It is between young people who are doing things a certain way and don't care what their elders think, no matter who their elders may be, and their elders, who tend, by dint of experience, to counsel caution when it comes to certain things. I know. I rebelled against the caution of my elders when I was a kid. I get it. I really do. The problem is that you have to have an end game. See, to say we want less brutal cops, that's wonderful. It's a, and it's a worthy goal. But how do you get to it? Do you stand out in the street forever and figure that somebody, whether it's Bill Bratton or Bill de Blasio or some new commissioner, is going to stand around and weed out these people who are brutal, who are excessive, whatever? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. What has to happen What needs to happen is what has partially happened already. Because one of the things that struck me last night was the fact that the people getting out of these police cars were people of color. Asians. Asians. I'm old enough to remember when if you saw an Asian in an NYPD uniform, you thought he might be impersonating a cop. (laughs) There just weren't any. All right. And I'm I'm not trying to uh, please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to talk bad about Asians. There just were not many Asian cops, period. That's changed. This is one of the most diverse police forces in the country. Still got, you know, its edges, obviously. But understand, ladies and gentlemen, the two people who were killed, Ramos and Lou, they're people of color. An Asian and a Latino. And they were killed by a homicidal maniac. I repeat, they were killed by a homicidal maniac. Not somebody that wanted justice for Michael Brown. or Not somebody who wanted justice for Eric Garner. Certainly didn't want justice for his ex-girlfriend. He shot her. Let's not delude ourselves about these things, folks. This is going to take work. And, you know, the whole what do we want, get away from me with that crap. It accomplishes nothing. It accomplishes nothing. Because the people who chant what do we want, dead cops, be the first one running to them if somebody goes upside their head. And I say this as, at least I consider myself to be, a hard left progressive person. But I'm not stupid, okay? And I'm not quite as crazy as I used to be when I was younger. You know, I've seen people confront cops. I remember I saw Imam Baraka one time. Amiri Baraka. Now, Amiri Baraka was about 5'4", okay? And he goes up on a bunch of cops and just screamed on them. You racist pig. I mean, just like off. All right. Cop just stood there and looked at him. It was a very strange scene. Um, But there's another side to this, ladies and gentlemen. And it's a side that I've seen, and I hope to God I do not see anymore. The other night, I saw a guy. I don't know, and when I walked past, I couldn't tell whether or not they had stopped him to look in his bag or so. I don't know what the deal was. But the dude went off. This is why these cops are getting killed. It's time for the Black Panthers, you know, a whole, a whole screed. And I mean, at the top of his lungs. Cops didn't do anything. They just stood there. Some people, Pat Lynch would probably say, well, you should have shot. You should have shot him. (laughs) You know, I mean, what, what? But this is what we are dealing with. And I get a sense that. Because they they trotted out Bernie freaking Carrick. Bernie Carrick's been in jail. <laughs> okay. You know, they didn't call him ex-con Bernie Carrick. They called him former police commissioner Bernie Carrick. That's not to knock Bernie Carrick. But like, yo, and, and this is in this effort to try and portray certain things certain ways. 
And, you know, when, when Bill de Blasio fired on the media, first of all, he, he should have had better sense because you can never win a fight with the media. But what the heck? I'm in the media, so I'm not in the battle. I'm not fighting anybody. But the media has a way of trying to make certain things, well, put it this way, to spit in your face and tell you it's raining. How about that? There is a, a concerted effort. And politicians, George Pataki and some of these other people ought to be ashamed of themselves. Well, Barack Obama created the climate with his anti And then can't come up with a single piece of anti-police rhetoric that ever came out of Barack Obama's mouth. But because he's on Fox News, he's not going to get challenged by anybody. So he says, well, that's Barack Obama's rhetoric. Or it's the education system. Or it's the man in the moon. <laughs> what? Come on. Let's have a little rationality here. I'll tell you who I saw this morning, who I thought was completely rational. The Reverend Michael Waldron from the First Corinthians uptown. He was on CNN. I don't know. Somebody must have called him in the middle of the night. <laughs> please get us a rational person in here, would you please? He made perfect sense. The Reverend Calvin Butts, who's a friend. Said that de Blasio ought to, ought to apologize to the cops. And I'm thinking to myself, what? Apologize to the cops for freaking what? Uh, but, but you know, uh, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna continue this discussion. Uh, we're gonna press pause for a moment <laughs> because we're gonna talk about an upcoming program dealing with the life and work of if I consider him to be a world icon, not just an African-American icon, not just a diaspora icon or an African icon. Professor John Henry Clark was an extremely, extremely special person. And there is a tribute being organized. It's on January 9th at the Convent Avenue Baptist Church in the village of Harlem. And joining us to talk all about it and a lot more is our good friend, the host of the lead story right here on the Progressive Radio Network. She is Miss Eutrice Lee. Good evening. Ms. Lentil Soup. <laughs> How you doing? Thank you, Mark. Fine, thanks a lot. Good, good. Um, first of all, me. T- <laughs> tell us, uh, for people who don't know who, who Professor John Henry Clark was, tell, tell us who he was. Professor John Henry Clark was a national treasurer and actually an international treasurer in that his entire a professional life, his working life, was devoted to retrieving the missing pages of our history as people of the African diaspora, bringing us closer to Africa, bringing Africa closer to us, and basically helping us to love ourselves and to uh, love our history. And when I say our, I mean everyone. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that he did was to uh, put as central to a world evolution of history the African continent, since that was, of course, where civilization began, and uh, basically to to restore uh, the centrality of Africa to uh, world consciousness. And mm-hmm. for that, he was an extraordinary... Uh, presence among us. He died in 1998. But this would have been, 2015 would have been his 100th anniversary uh, of the birth of of this great man. And so many of us decided that we need to do something to just commemorate that and to uh, initiate a year-long observation and commemoration of his work and of his significance in our lives. Eutrice, one of the things that, that uh, struck me about uh, Professor Clark, and, and I had the, the privilege of interviewing him more than once, was that he was a let-the-chips-fall-where-they-may kind of person. Mm-hmm. He would say things sometimes I, that I knew would anger some Pan-Africanists, uh, some people who are, are of certain religious beliefs, uh, but he was always grounded in history, No. And uh, he was always right. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> more, more importantly, he was always right. Um, this was a, another wonderful and daring quality of Dr. Clark, and that was that 
he was not a, a fan of make uh, you know make believe or or feel good history. It, it was solid scholarship, and it let the chips fall, as you said, it let the chips fall where they they would, uh, and he called it as he saw it all the time. He never veered away from that, and that was uh, a, 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 an iconic. A manner of his. He just would say what needed to be said, and you just had to deal with it. You know, uh, one thing I, I realized is that, that so many people see Professor Clark, uh, and, and saw him when he was alive as well, as a very, very serious man. I had the privilege one time of being backstage at the Apollo Theater, and I was in the, uh, one of the uh, rooms off stage with Professor Clark and Dr. Betty Shabazz, the two of them. And I... Eutrice, my jaw was on the floor from laughing at these two because, you know, uh, 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 <laughs> Professor Clark was very close to Malcolm X. Now, at the time, there were a lot of people who used to call me, who used to write you uh, uh, back in the day, uh, who would say that you know, I was close to Brother Malcolm. And, and you know, Dr. Shabazz uh, suffered fools not at all, never mind gladly. And she would she would loud people. You didn't know my husband. I'll never forget she did that on my show once. I almost fell over. But oh Professor Clark was a friend of Malcolm X. And, you know, they were sitting back there talking, and, and he turned to her and said, you remember when your husband called me swine eater? <laughs> he used to call yeah, me swine eater. <laughs> it's funny that you should bring this up because, in fact, I keep telling everyone, uh, apart from, you know, if you're right, he was a very serious scholar. But what I remember most about him and what I cherish most about him was he was insanely funny. He was. He absolutely and, uh, was. Many times, you know, uh, after his lectures, I would have the, the the privilege of taking him home if, 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 he, if he agreed to entrust himself to me <laughs> and my driving. <laughs> <laughs> and and the funny thing, all the way home, it would, I mean, I used to say, you know, if I had a mic, people would never think that this is the same man, very serious scholar, but we would be cracking up and laughing all the way. Uh, he was a very, very funny person, very much so. Absolutely. Why do you think it is, Eutrice, that uh, 15, almost 16 years after his passing, um, there is a substantial uh, cohort within the African-American community don't know who he is. And that's what we're hoping to begin to reverse by reviving his work and promoting his work and getting people to understand that uh, there, are, there are few scholars whose works, I think, are just absolutely necessary uh, for anyone wanting to become familiar with African and African American history, and Dr. John Henrik Clark is one of them. Uh, he was a student of Arturo Schomburg, who, as you know, assembled one of the largest collections of works pertaining to African and African Americans and Africans in the diaspora. And Dr. Clark himself had uh, 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 acquired a major library, in fact. Two um, institutions have libraries that are named for him. One is at Cornell. Cornell, yeah. And, and he bequeathed his papers to Clark Atlanta University. And still, that did not contain all of his works and, and collected books, uh, and many of them are very rare. But uh, it's, it's a wonderful and fitting way on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of his birth to kind of begin a kind of John Henry Clark revival and to get people uh, to explore his work and to get to know better the, the history of Africa. And this is particularly important for African Americans, but it pertains to everyone. Everybody, absolutely. Now, this is January 9th, 2015. January the 9th. And yes. it's going to be at the Convent Avenue Baptist Church. Tell us more. It's going to be at Convent Avenue Baptist Church at 7 p.m., and this is really uh, an outpouring of love. It's, that's all it is to say uh, all of us who cherish Dr. Clark, who remember him attending his lectures, who have had the, the great and exquisite privilege of being in an audience with him, 
Uh, and those of us, of course, familiar with some of his work, uh, enough to let us know how valuable he was and is to our understanding of, of Africa and, and of our own history and of ourselves. We're coming together just to say thank you. Uh, we're paying our tribute to him. And we're doing so uh, in, in a way that he would have loved because among everything else, apart from everything else, he truly, truly loved his role as teacher. Mm-hmm. So the evening is titled Tribute to a Master Teacher. He always referred to himself, he said, at one point when people asked, well, how would you like to be remembered? He said, I am a master teacher. And that's uh, the the title of the evening. Several speakers will be there. Many of them, of course, are from the academic world, themselves world-renowned scholars like Leonard Jeffries and others will be there, uh, people from the, the diplomatic world, and people who were mentored by him, people who went on to continue the tradition of studying uh, African-American history and, and uh, pursuing even the doctorates in this uh, uh, arena, and the community at large, because he was such a cherished treasure among us, and we're saying thank you, thank you, thank you, Dr. Clark, for just being here and performing a lifelong uh, service to our community by, again, retrieving our missing pages of history. And so we will get get together and have a a wonderful fellowship that evening. Let me ask you this, Uh, and this may sound off the wall, but but it dawned on me as you were speaking. Um, Do you think there will ever come a time when there will be, and, and forgive my anger, maybe there already is, but when there will be a John Hambrick Clark chair of a particular higher institution of higher education? It's long overdue. That's a fantastic question, Mark. That's a great question. And that is our job. That is our duty. It will be when we compel it to be mm-hmm. and when we make it happen. And that, too, you know, uh, this centenary of Dr. John Henry Clark's birth gives us the opportunity to rededicate ourselves to purposeful action and, uh, of course, purposeful learning. Uh, but it starts really with, with a recognition of his importance and significance to us uh, and to the world, the, the African diaspora particularly. And we just want to say thank you. And, of course, being a son of Harlem, uh, Convent Avenue Baptist Church is the appropriate place. Absolutely. Uh, it, right at the corner of 145th Street and Convent Avenue. And uh, hopefully we're looking for the biggest turnout ever in the history of mankind uh, for <laughs> Dr. John Henry Clark. Uh, we'll have an African drumming. We'll certainly hear his voice. And we will. Be, the choir will be there to sing uh, for him. And it's just an act of love, just saying thank you so much for all that you have done and all that you have left behind as testament to your dedication to your people. You know, uh, it's amazing, uh, you know, when you say this. Uh, I've been in convent for any number of different events uh, over the course of my career. And I could see Convent Avenue Baptist Church overflowing with people looking to pay tribute to this great man. Uh, He was just such... Uh, and even listening to his uh, lectures, because I've had a chance. And are all of his uh, uh, audio lectures in in uh, at Clark, or are they available to people? Do you know? We are going through uh, what is there, and some of them, you know, need a little repair. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of work ahead. But the main thing is that there is a desire to. Uh, basically bring things up to snuff and to organize his work uh, that people can have access to them. Uh, And this is the centennial year. So all of these things are kind of, there's a a convergence of interest here to do the right thing by Dr. Clark. Absolutely. uh, We're starting off on January the 9th, and uh, throughout the year there will be a series of events, not just in New York, but all across the nation, uh, commemorating his centennial year. Fantastic. Now, I, I would ordinarily let you go, but I had a chance to, <laughs> to hear your broadcast earlier, uh, lead story, 
And of course, uh, I've been. It was wonderful. It's always wonderful. And thank uh, you so much. You know, it 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 strikes me. Uh, you know, as we talk on this program about the killing of the two officers, the response on the part of, of you know, communities, uh, one of the things I have to say, and, and it changed today, but one of the things that, that has troubled me about this, and it's troubling me about a lot of other situations where people die by the gun, is that there's very little effort to try and trace how that gun got into that person's hand. Now, apparently... Mm-hmm. Uh, this gun was last, uh, the last traceable evidence of this gun was in 1996 in a, some kind of gun store in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. After that, it seems to have dropped off the face of the earth until it got into this guy Brinsley's hand. But t- tell me what your perspective is on this. You know, I, I am, I did a piece uh, yesterday in which we, we looked at how the, the police brass were basically up, updating the media about what they have uh, so far found out about this young man. And it is troubling that people are just moving to the side, the fact and the clear evidence that this young man was troubled for a very, very, very long, long time. time. His parents and, said so, yeah. And got no help. Um, so... It was ironic that the police officer, I mean, the police commissioner, who is known for his broken windows theory, which espouses that if you ignore the small things, uh, they eventually mushroom into big things. And here we have a a very good example, but he dismisses the the example that he's citing. Uh, the example is that here was a young man who very early on indicated a need for intervention, mental health intervention, did not get it over all those years. Who knows what you know occurred in his mind, but we saw that in the last hours of his life, we saw a, a, a horrific uh, drama unfolding in his mind that led him to attempt to kill his former girlfriend, mm-hmm. and shot her then inexplicably called her mother to uh, find out if she pulled through, uh, you know, then gets uh, on a bus, supposedly comes to New York uh, with the intention of killing these officers, police officers, and in fact ended up killing two, and then ended up allegedly killing himself. This is a huge story of, of serious uh, disconnection mm-hmm. and one also of major, major anger. And this is, I think, what needs to come out of the of this event here. It's as tragic as it is. We need the African American community, the scholars and the experts in, in these areas, to really uh, come forward with what they know about this kind of uh, profile of a young man. This, this, this distance from a, a reality early in his life, descending into the depths of despair. And I'm not suggesting by any means that all of this is supposed to excuse what he did. But I'm saying that I believe very strongly that he is representative of a large contingent of young men who have no place or don't, don't understand how they should ha- handle this kind of anger. And, uh, and I believe that if we take an even closer look, we could see how this uh, impacts violence within our communities, mm-hmm. domestic violence, all these things. Uh, this is a, a, but this requires a non-standard approach. The standard approach would be, you know, well, you know. The the standard approach is what we see. I mean, you and I could have written the script 15 minutes after these police officers tragically lost their lives. We know because we've been around for a minute that the head of the PBA (laughs) is going to blame the mayor. And by the way, no matter who the mayor may have happened to have been, uh, you know. Uh, there are going to be some people that are called for comps. Some people will call for I mean, the script was already written. The script was written. And what I'm saying is the, the conversation has not gotten to the depth that it needs to get 
on a na nationwide basis, and our experts need to lead the way here about what oppression does. What oppression does to the mind, what oppression does to uh, people's thinking and, and the, the, the existence that they decide to design for themselves, it may make no sense at all to anybody else. Uh, oppression as a, as a kind of mental illness itself, or the fact that it inculcates mental illness, um, we don't deal with it that way. And people will say, oh, you're just, you know, one of those namby-pamby kind of things. But this is very serious. It is very because serious. Because a lot of people are in that, in that place of anger where, it, 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 you know, they, they make up their own rules. They, they have no way of coping. And clearly, even from his, uh, the statements I've seen from his mother and from his sister, uh, they they were completely uh, un, unable to to help him deal with it. No, they were they were afraid uh, of him. They were afraid of him. Now, how many uh, young men are similarly situated? Because this is the thing. This is a conversation that I think the the the, the powers that be would not like us to have. But this is the conversation that we need to have, and we need to have. The, the experts who will help us understand this, uh, and, uh, you know, not as, again, not as some kind of a namby-pamby thing, but this is a very serious affliction, I think, and I think it is far more pervasive than people are willing to admit. Well, you know, Utrecht, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, um, those, you know, intervention that could have helped Ismail Brinsley or other people, and by the way, uh, I find it very interesting that, that you know, the media... Uh, is all too willing to allow politicians and others to link what Ismail Brinsley did to the protests around police uh -huh. brutality, where in other instances, when people who were not African-American uh, went on rampages and, and, and shot cops or shot people in restaurants or whatever, and, you know, they were anti-government, they used to subscribe to anti-government websites, the people say, well, no, that had nothing to do with it. <laughs> but, uh, right. I, you know, it, it for me... It's like, how do you how do you get to the point where folks will take seriously the need to intervene? Because in my judgment, I got to tell you, um, an intervention that saves a life, we never find out about because no one's killed. You know what I mean? If someone mm -hmm. had intervened in Ismael Brinsley's life and those officers had just gone about their tour that night and, and, and gone out about their business, how would we have ever known that it was that he was teetering at one point on the edge of doing something this crazy. You see what I'm saying? This is this is why I'm saying we need leadership from our experts or people who understand what we are looking at, uh, and they, it cannot be the standard uh, normal quote unquote approach. We need people who understand the nature of oppression and what it potentially can do and what it sometimes actually does to uh, produce in people some of these catastrophic decisions and catastrophic, uh, catastrophic actions. This is a huge issue for the community itself. This is mental health for the community because I'm willing to bet in many, many households right now uh, especially households in, in, in distressed communities. And it need not necessarily be distressed communities because, I mean, we heard even the president of the United States talk about being at a party when somebody asked him for coffee mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, threw him the keys to a car thinking he was the guy to park it. Uh, oh, but wait a minute, you treat that, that, that that's anti-cop rhetoric you're talking here. The president, that's what, what he was doing. He was stoking the fires. <laughs> you don't watch Fox News? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Fox sees all kinds of crazy things. I know. They, I know. Need, they need intervention. But the, what I'm saying is that it is to me, I would consider it so urgent as to be a part of the, 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 the homeschooling. It should be part of the schooling, part of the regimen within our homes and within our communities, that people need to understand these things are quite, not only possible, but they are occurring. 
Yeah. And we need to find some way to stem it because there we, we can't deny any longer that there is intense anger and resentment. Uh, we see here a horrible instance in which it is turned both outward and inward at the same time mm-hmm. with deadly results. Uh, it, it should not have happened in either case. We should have had this young man identified early as being in need, desperately in need of help. He should have been able to get counseling within a culturally sensitive environment, and he he could have been redeemed. He could have been, you know, retrieved from this uh, abyss. Uh, it's quite possible that he could have been uh, saved mm-hmm. even from himself. But we got to have this conversation. This this is really awful um, because it, 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 nobody nobody benefits at all. Uh, from allowing this condition to continue, but it takes a particularly insightful approach and a, a consistent effort to move away from the norm and understand that oppression is real, it produces and can produce really lethal results, it is dehumanizing in more ways than, than we, we could ever know, and it is important for our community to address this issue of mental health and to see it in relation to our literal existence from day to day, all the different ways in which we are dehumanized. Mm-hmm. What do you do? What do you do with all of that? Absolutely. Where do you park all these feelings? How do you, how do you contain your rage? How do you redirect your action? You know, how do you navigate life and in, in a racist, apartheid country? We have to deal with that, mm-hmm. where vast populations that we don't care to know or we don't care to name or we don't care to, to, to recognize, nonetheless are experiencing these things every day. What is the cumulative effect of this dehumanization? It will express itself violently. We're and here, enough. as I said, it is outwardly and inwardly, but with, in both instances with lethal results. Now, Eutrice, let me ask you a couple of final quick questions. How much longer do you think uh, the finger-pointing between the protesters, the city government, and the police, how much longer do you think that's going to go on? When will it spend itself? It will will go on. First of all, I think the protests are a a very good idea because I, I think people are beginning to express within the protests really what they're saying is, we cannot look to the system. The system is completely out of touch. The system is either unwilling or unable to do what it needs to do. But in any event, it is not responding appropriately. And people are fed up. They're fed up with uh, an inertia that has grasped governmental systems at the, the local, state, and federal levels. They're fed up. Uh, the, the thing is, the, the, the burgeoning leadership that we're seeing now is new at it at this level. You know, they might have done things in very micro level, but they have stepped forward in a vacuum. Uh, they don't. Wait, 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 wait! Stop for a second. See, because now you've hit on something very interesting. They've stepped into a vacuum. Yes. But most people think there wasn't a vacuum. That what you well, call a vacuum was being filled by the Reverend Al Sharpton, for example. I I was startled on December thirteenth to realize that this is the first time in a very, very long time that Al Sharpton held a march in D.C. And at the same time, the same time, a march that drew as many people was taking place in his backyard. That was very significant to me. People, I mean, Al Sharpton and others have done so many programs about it. They are, and they cannot escape responsibility here for uh, mishandling these cases. They have absolutely mishandled these cases. How so? And in, in, because, again, these cases were, are, and, and still are being uh, handled as personal injury cases when all is said and done, and not as class action cases, which speak to the justice issue. These issues, the, the cases are being handled primarily, if you look at it, uh, as cases that were 
pay off very nicely at the end, you know, through negotiation and settlement with the government, mm-hmm. uh, the city governments. And that's, that's pretty much where their energies have gone. Their energies have not gone into uh, confronting the state and compelling the state to perform accordingly in order to secure justice. The justice at, uh, aspect of it has been completely ignored and left unattended. So, but they have situated the case for public relations purposes as if they are doing the work of justice, but they're not. There's nothing in the, in the court system that suggests they have filed any uh, legal papers, any actions, any motions, questioning anything. Uh, you know, this, they, you get vapid uh, um, responses, and it's usually behind a microphone at some news conference. But that is not where the battle for justice is. The battle for justice is not behind microphones or not under the warm glow of television lights. The, the battle for justice is in the court system, and there, there is a stark absence of any evidence that they have been battling for justice. Hmm. So they are dealing with this purely in terms of compensation for the families and so forth, because then, of course, the lawyers get a cut, and who knows what Sharpton gets, because he is bringing in the legal team to handle these things. Yes. Uh, this is a travesty. But at the same time that they're doing that, they are utilizing and leveraging a mass movement. Uh, they created this so-called mass movement, and people are very well-meaning. They're participating energetically with a sincere effort uh, of thinking that, you know, they're contributing to the justice part of it. There's no, there's no justice going on here. They're not taking care of that business at all. Mm. Uh, it, it, they didn't take care of it in the Trayvon Martin case. They didn't take care of it in this uh, Eric Garner case. It's not being taken care of in the Michael Brown case. It's purely about the, the money part of it. But, but uh, how, but do they, they, how do they seek justice by using the existing system, if the existing system time and time and time and time again, uh, you know, ends up uh, coming up with no true bill when it comes to brutality. But, but that's or, or my life. point exactly. When you have a direct contrast here, uh, Alton Maddox is the first attorney who forced, compelled the state to function appropriately with the appointment of a special prosecutor. It was a big fight. Mm-hmm. It was a big fight, but it was in the court. That's how it gets done. I remember. You don't just say, uh, we want the, the uh, special prosecutor pretty, pretty please. It doesn't work like that. You have to force the state, and it means that you have to embarrass the governor and put him on, on notice publicly and force the system to do what it has to do. But if you are part of the system, if you are a consultant to the Democratic Party, if you, if it matters more to you to be uh, hobnobbing with the hobnobables within the Democratic Party, <laughs> the what? As the hobnobables. Hobnobables. Uh, I got you. Yes. If it, if that matters more to you than justice, what you do, therefore, is you accommodate the system, even though you and you go through this big elaborate thing to make it look like you're out there, you know, chanting for justice and whatnot. But the evidence suggests. Because you look and you say, well, can I find, where would I find a motion that you've made in the court with a docket number? <laughs> mm. it, ain't, it ain't there. These folks are not taking care of business. And they cannot ex- escape blame, and I would use that word, they mm. cannot escape blame for the, the fact that these two cases in particular have been derailed. We, I predicted that to a T in both cases, Back in, on August the 19th, I told people exactly what was going to happen, not because I, I, I'm gifted with extra sensory perception, but you only need to, to study these cases and I know, you can see the predictable patterns, right? I, I, I uh, ended up doing the same thing uh, in the Sean Bell case. Uh, actually, Wendy Williams had me on her show when she was still on radio, and she said, Riley, what, what do you think is going to happen? I said, the cops are going to walk, Wendy. What do you think is going to happen? And then and, but 48 there hours later, no they walk. paperwork. There was no paperwork to, to, to suggest that the lawyers anticipated it and headed them off at the pass through uh, legal 
paperwork, legal motions, legal objections. Aren't, isn't uh, going to the feds legal legal paperwork? Or I'm is sorry? That, is, is going to the feds and asking the feds to investigate these no, things? No, in fact, no, it's a diversion. When people say we're going to go to the feds, it is meant to give the public the impression that they take this so seriously that they're going to go to the feds through the, other, uh, you know, the ultimate power. No, here's the thing. This is a local matter, and it should be dealt with if ha- the, the, the city and the state have the capacity to deal with it and, uh, as a local matter. We have a, a city council that has the power and authority to get these things done. And precisely at a time that we have a uh, significant presence within the city council of African-American and Latino elected officials, these mm-hmm. are the people dis- uh, representing these distressed communities, we have zero power. They have the power to fire the police commissioner. They have the power to cause a major hearing immediately to investigate. They have the power of subpoena. They have the power to dis- to to find out why there was nothing done here in the in the in the situation with the. Wait uh, wait, wait a minute. <clears throat> now you're saying that the city council could fire the police commissioner even if the mayor didn't want to. Absolutely. I didn't the, know the, that. the city council is the government of the city. I know, but I thought I always thought the police commissioner served at the pleasure of the mayor. No, he does technically, but the city council has power even over the mayor. He's not a king. Oh, no, I I agree with you 100% there, but I I just couldn't (laughs) see. The city council has not flexed its muscle. I couldn't see Melissa Mark Viverito going to Bill de Blasio, her friend, and say, fire Bratton. I I, I just couldn't see it. Well, they don't have to go to to Bratton. They have the power of subpoena. We have this guy coming back here for for the second crack at ineptitude, all right? And, <laughs> and he's performing marvelously in that department. Uh, you, you know, you, you, if you have a functioning city council who understand that they have power and authority, and you see no instance at all where they flex that power or authority, to cause things to happen, they, they, they are the government of the city. That's why they were elected. And they all punk out. <laughs> Tell they us all, how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. They've all punked out. And they've all caved in because they have decided to, to uh, pledge their loyalty first to the Democratic Party rather than to their communities. Interesting. Jesus, we got to leave it there. Uh, but, you know, we're going to have to do this again sometime soon, you know. Let's do Absolutely. And again, January 9th, 7 p.m., Convent Avenue Baptist Church, corner of Convent Avenue and 145th Street. And its title again is? Tribute to a Master Teacher. The great Professor John Henry Clark. Eutrice Lee, as always, great to talk with you. Thank you so much, Mark. You great take care. always being with you. Have a good have a good holiday. Whatever. Do you do Festivus? Is that is that your thing? <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had to ask. You just had to. Yeah. I know. Enjoy Thank the lentils. You. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good one, Eutrice. Eutrice Lead, host of the Lead Story, right here on the Progressive Radio Network. Now, Jason. Uh, oh, I got ten minutes left. I still got ten. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Here's the thing. When I was on my way up here today. I thought to myself, you know what? I really haven't shilled for PRN. <laughs> you know what I mean? And when I say shilled, I'm saying it in the best possible way. I haven't said to people that as you go through this holiday season, if you do have a couple of coins to rub together on the other side, when you're finished paying for all the, you know, all, all the gadgets and the iPads and the this and the that and you know, whatever it is you bought for loved ones. And I, and I know you did it out of a sense of goodness and a good out of a good heart. If you could expand your good heart just a little bit and donate to the Progressive Radio Network, the work that is being done here, and not by me, by Eutrice Lee and, and, and by Dave Lindorf and a lot of the other people that are on this network, this is important work. Do you hear and do you see some of the crap that masquerades as media out here. I mean, unmitigated crap. 
it's just like, come on. And, and, you know, and what happens is people, you know, they get, they're, they're sitting there in their slippers. They throw the slipper at the TV set and figure that's the end of that. Or they turn to watch NCIS or they turn to watch the Kardashians or they turn, hey, you can have a role in keeping an important news and in, uh, uh, information source alive. That's the Progressive Radio Network. Gary Null has put this out here for people. It's prn.fm. Not enough people know about it, quite frankly, because it's not on your on the terrestrial dial. It's better than 90% of what's on the terrestrial dial, and I say that as somebody who spent 40 years on the terrestrial dial. So I know from what I speak. Uh Jason, how, how do they how do they donate? Uh, you know, you can you can give me sign language if you don't want to. Oh, okay. Go to the website. There's a donate icon on there. All right. Go to the website, prn.fm. Click on that web, on that donate website and give what you can. I'm not saying, you know, you, you like empty your bank account. Although if you got a lot of money, it would be really, really nice. But, you know, help this network out. It is deserving of your support. You listen to it. Because you're getting information you're not getting most other places. You know, every day I get, you know, when I go on Facebook, I see that, you know, when I go to my, uh, uh, I don't even know what it is. But I click on it and I see this drop down. And, you know, a lot of it's from friends and from different groups I belong to. But a lot of it's from PRN. And you click on some of the stuff and, and you see stories about stuff that is absolutely incredible. Like, I, you know, give you a couple of examples. This is just from, from my show, okay? I felt really, really good when the governor banned fracking and his his acting health commissioner said it wasn't just concerns about water pollution, it was a concern about air pollution. And the reason for that was we had somebody on who had just done a study about the, uh, the polluting effects of fracking, the air polluting effects. And everybody was shooting them down saying, ah, oh, it's not right. It's not proper science. It's not this and that. I don't know whether the acting state health commissioner looked at that study or not. I don't really care. But I know that we were here saying something about it. We talked about the drought in California. When uh, from a lot of East Coast people, drought where? They didn't know. I didn't know. We're here for you. PRN.FM, click on that donate thing, won't you? Now, uh, in other news, <laughs> uh, and, and this is really interesting, uh, and it, it, it should show that you all got a little bit of money because the economy grew 5% in the third quarter, the fastest growth rate in more than a decade. And, uh, you know, I, I say this. Not to say that everything's wine and roses, because it's not. I ain't stupid. I know that there are people who are still hurting economically. There are people who still have not recovered fully from 08. I mean, they call it, they can call it a great recession. You call it whatever you want. Just call it 08. And everybody who, who was affected by it will know. All right? The scars of that economic debacle are still on the faces and the backs of a lot of people. People work 20 years in a gig. Suddenly, psh, sorry, goodbye. And there are some lasting ill effects of, you know, the economic downturn, the Great Recession, whatever you want to call it, 08, as far as I'm concerned, that we're still feeling. But the economy is uh, apparently gaining some steam. Output rose in an annual rate of 5% during the summer. And that was a, a, a revision from 3.9. Went up 1.1. And it looks like investment business is investing. And not just in politicians. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I had to say that. Because, you know, a lot of businesses do invest more or less in politicians. But we only got a couple of minutes left. And I got I to gotta say this because, it, Jason, I have been stunned by the lack of coverage of this particular story. You remember that guy, uh, McCullough, the prosecutor uh, in, the, in the Michael Brown case? Well, this chump, this cur, has admitted, admitted 
that uh, he put people before the grand jury that heard the case, the supposed case against Darren Wilson. He put people up there that he knew were lying. That's L-Y-I-N-G. Bob McCullough, in an interview on radio station KTRS last Friday, said he decided to present witnesses that were, quote, clearly not telling the truth to the grand jury. And this was specifically about a woman named Witness 40, who was not even there when Michael Brown got shot, yet testified in front of the grand jury that she was an eyewitness. You heard that thing where charged at the cop like a football player? That was her. <laughs> she testified. In front, and she was, and, and apparently she's a racist too. Now, what do you think ought to happen to somebody that does this? Uh, he, and he's a prosecutor. He's a guy whose job it is to seek justice. Now, under the Missouri rules of pro, uh, professional conduct, lawyers, and I assume McCullough's a lawyer, are prohibited from, quote, offering evidence that the lawyers, that the lawyer knows to be false. He justified his actions by asserting that the grand jury gave no credence at all to this woman's testimony. How does he know? They let him off, didn't they? <laughs> and they gave him no credence. And, you know, McCullough apparently is not allowed to be present during all this. But uh, how, what, how do you do that? How do you put before a grand jury someone you know is going to go in front of them and lie like a rug? I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Speaking of lying like a rug, <laughs> Michael Grimm, <laughs> you remember him? One of the brothers Grimm? <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, the guy who said, I'm going to fight this tax fraud indictment to the nail. To the nail, I say. Well, I guess he's toothless because he copped a plea to tax fraud and then turned around and said, no, as Jennifer Holliday said, I am telling you, I'm not going. The usual suspects, Nancy Pelosi and the DNC and those people all called on him to resign. The only one that's got any credibility is Jerry Nadler because I really like him. The rest of them, what do you think they're going to do? What do you think he's going to do? You think because Nancy Pelosi or, or, or uh, uh Oh, God. Uh, Wasserman, uh, uh, Debbie Wasserman. You think because they say you got to go that he's going to go? Oh, no, 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 no. Sony's The Interview is going to be screened on about 200 screens. Starting tomorrow, they planned on rolling it out to two to 3,000 screens. Now, I got a friend, okay, and we were talking about this yesterday. And, J Jason, you know what he said to me? He said, you know, I can't help thinking that this was all a publicity stunt to begin with <laughs> and that all of this stuff was to hype the movie without having to pay a dime for commercials. <laughs> now I, I'm not as cynical as some. Okay. But uh, you know, stranger things have happened way stranger things have happened. Speaking of stranger things, we have time for to the ridiculous. They've got new MTA posters, Jason posters. I say that will try and stop bad behavior and bad etiquette on the subway. Do you know what manspreading is? No. I, yeah. When you spread your legs on the train so nobody can sit down next to you. <laughs> you know, that kind of. Well, they're apparently talking about rolling out these ads, uh, you know, like, like posters that they're going to put in the train, which means they'll last about 30 seconds, uh, saying, you know, like, don't manspread, courtesy counts, step aside and let other, others offer. Yeah, good luck with that. Keep your stuff to yourself. What do they mean by stuff? Take your take your pack off your back. Easier said than done. Offer your seat to an elderly, disabled, or pregnant person. Well, yo, I'm elderly. Ain't nobody ever gave me a seat. Uh, take your litter off with you and keep the sound down. Now, most people don't use boom boxes anymore. But when they say keep the sound down, they mean like those cheap earbuds where everybody on the train can hear what, whatever bad music you're listening to because they're not constructed properly and they're not far enough in your ear, so you're the only one that gets to hear the bad music. Well, hey, time for me to go, all right? I'm not going to be here next Wednesday. It's New Year's Eve. And uh, although my partying days are well behind me, I'm uh, going to take next week off. So you're going to get a chance to hear a rerun 
of the Mark Riley Show. Hopefully this one, because I, I, I think we, we kind of had an enjoyable time with this. My thanks, as always, to Jason Taubenfeld for his engineering expertise. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. See you soon. Bye.